Well, we're trying to keep our numbers down uh, below uh, 10 people gathered together. And so here uh, this morning, I feel like I'm preaching to six people. Now, um, I care about these people very much. I don't want to steer them wrong, but for some reason it feels like there's a little bit more uh, pressure preaching to just six people. Uh, furthermore, we're trying to keep all of the background no- noise down, and so no one's making a sound. I'm, I'm speaking to speechless people. It's, uh, it's very unusual. Another thing that's unusual is the passage that I'll be preaching from this morning. Uh, this passage is from Second Chronicles chapter 30. Uh, little theologians, I know you're out there. Uh, you are uh, greatly missed. Uh, moms and dads, when you're nervous about your children going a little haywire during a worship service, let me tell you, from my vantage point, uh, that uh, haywired little theologian is just beautiful to me. <laughs> it just adds a, a sense of uh, normalcy to our gathering for worship. But little theologians, uh, I want you this morning to draw a picture for me of something I don't think you know what it is. So you're going to need uh, mom and dad to help you. And so uh, mom and dad, if you are a little too ashamed to draw while your pastor's preaching, well, here's your, here's your opportunity. Little uh, theologians, would you draw for me a picture of a flat-spotted big wheel? Got that? A big wheel, but it's not running at 100%. It has at least one of its three tires flat-spotted. That's what I'd like for you to draw for me. Because this passage, Second Chronicles chapter 30, is a passage in which we see a very, very godly man, a king, in fact, Hezekiah. And he's doing very godly things. He's leading his people in worship when they haven't worshipped in a very long time. But he's not doing it perfectly. There's some irregularity, some maybe flat-spotted tires here and there. Godly man leading God's people in worship, but doing it irregularly. There's a little bit of a wobble in his leadership. That's why I want you to draw for me a picture of a big wheel. Uh, Let me, uh, first of all, uh, pray, and then you can very uh, quietly ask mom and dad what this big wheel thing is. Let's first pray together. Our Father, even in the hearing of your word, that's done at such a, a vast geographic distance, and the preaching of your word in a setting that I confess is unusual for me, Would your word even still not return void? We thank you for making yourself known and trust that by your Holy Spirit you will give us understanding despite the geographic distance between the members of this body right now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage again, it's from 2 Chronicles chapter 30. Let's begin with verses 1 through 4. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. For the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had taken counsel to keep the Passover in the second month, for they could not keep it at that time because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient number, nor had the people assembled in Jerusalem. And the plan seemed right to the king and all the assembly. And now if you would skip forward 
to the same chapter, but verse 17. For there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore, the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who was not clean to consecrate it to the Lord. For a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. For Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. And the people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. And Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord. So they ate the food of the festival for seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord, the God of their fathers. Then the whole assembly agreed together to keep the feast for another seven days. So they kept it for another seven days with gladness. This is the word of our Lord. Well, uh, I want to speak to you for a moment as a uh, Presbyterian, as a Reformed Presbyterian, uh, the kind of Protestant Christian who tends to think he or she has everything together. I'm speaking in caricatures here, but you know what I mean. We Presbyterians tend to have a lot of our ducks in a row. And I have been thinking about uh, this season in the life of our church, and it is a season that presents us with a challenge. And the challenge is, uh, how do we lead our people when um, all of our wonderful theology that we have in the past uh, promulgated to our people, displayed to our people, uh, exercised before our people every Sunday morning? What do we do when all of that theological rationale that has informed that Sunday morning worship service, the rationale still exists, but it's actually not possible for us to worship that way? In fact, we could put it this way. Uh, There are passages in Scripture, there's actually very good theology in the Bible that would instruct us to worship in yet a different way. Now, Uh, That presents a little bit of a challenge. The theological rationale for why we worship is still there, and yet God, uh, in his ordained will, has uh, uh, enlivened other scriptures that now guide our path forward, and so uh, we feel a little bit wobbly. When I was a little boy, I loved my big wheel, and I would ride up and down the street in in front of my house on that big wheel. And uh, it was uh, wonderful. There was, there was freedom in it. And, and not only that, uh, all of the kids in the neighborhood had big wheels. And so we would all ride together like a gang. It was fantastic. But what you learn over time is you learn that a big wheel will slowly degrade. And you uh, know that a big wheel, you should know that a big wheel has just uh, one brake, one handbrake. And the tire for that handbrake will often go bad, and it'll go bad before the tire on the other side. And the tire is not made of rubber. The tire is made of a plastic cylinder, and it gets very, very thin and mushy over time, and then finally uh, a hole develops. And now, how does your big wheel sound? Now, if you're, if you're my age, you know exactly how that big wheel sounds. It, it bumps along. And if your mom and dad are wealthy, maybe you'll just get a new big wheel. But that was pretty rare. 
But you wanted to use your big wheel in such a way that it wouldn't get bumpy. You would see one of your friends, and you would see how his big wheel is, and you'd want to make sure that yours wasn't like that. You need to change the braking points a little bit so that that cylindrical plastic tire wears down evenly. But to be perfectly honest, if it developed a hole in one of the back, back wheels or the front, you still rode that big wheel. And I venture to say that you still derive the same amount of pleasure from that wobbly big wheel as you did from the big wheel before it was wobbly. We get older over time, and uh, those irregularities begin to bother us. We'd never tolerate that now, would we? When we're, when we're kids, we tolerate that kind of stuff, but not when we're adults. We do everything within our power so that there would be no irregularities in our lives. And the passage that we've looked at this morning from 2 Chronicles is a passage in which we see a very godly man who is leading people in worship. But even as this godly man does so, the big wheel wobbles. There are irregularities, and I want to take us to those irregularities in the worship that takes place in Jerusalem, which seems to be the first, maybe the second year of King Hezekiah's reign. But what I want you to hear through this is right here. When we worship God, we are serving the will of a gracious God who actually loves us in Christ Jesus. When we worship God, we're we're serving a gracious God who delights in our worship, not because of what we have done, but who loves us in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you what I'm going to do this morning. I want to spend time talking about the man Hezekiah and then the audience for whom 2 Chronicles is written, and then finally the purpose Uh, This man, uh, Hezekiah, Uh, he is a king, and he's one of those rare kings in that he is a good king. Every now and again, there would be a king in Jerusalem who is a good king. All of the kings in the the northern kingdom, uh, those were all bad kings. But Hezekiah becomes uh, king, and he lives his entire life as a, a good king. Not perfect, but good. You know, Hezekiah, uh, when he was nine years old, his dad became king. And so at age nine, uh, he lived in the royal household as the son of a king. Now, his grandfather was king as well, but Ahaz stands out because Ahaz was not one of those kings who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Ahaz did what was wicked in the eyes of the Lord. And that's the household that Hezekiah grew up in. Uh, King uh, Ahaz, at the uh, age of 20, uh, he becomes king, but he also becomes fascinated with uh, pagan gods, and he begins fabricating idols, even as the king of Judah. Ahaz uh, begins to uh, build these idols and worship these idols, but not only that, we're told in Scripture that uh, he would even uh, burn one or two of his sons just outside Jerusalem in honor of an idol. Now, there's a sense in which we wonder how in the world Hezekiah even survived. A lot of Hezekiah's siblings did not. And it seems very early in his kingship that Ahaz begins worshiping a god that demands that uh, Ahaz sacrifice uh, his children. Ahaz was for a time captured by Syria, and he lived in Syria uh, with his family. So Hezekiah was likely with him in Syria, and uh, King Ahaz saw something in Syria that intrigued him. He saw the shape and, and, and material of an altar that was different than the altar in Jerusalem. And King Ahaz, he brought back those plans to Jerusalem when he was uh, released 
And, and in Jerusalem, he duplicated that altar of Damascus. And, and, and as he uh, duplicates this altar, he places this altar where God's altar should have been. And he rearranges the furniture of the Temple Mount. He actually pushes God's altar over to the north side of the temple so that front and center would be this new altar fashioned after the model of Damascus. Now, it's remarkable that he likely sacrificed a son there as well. Think about that. Sacrificing a son of his on the Temple Mount. Well, over time, Israel attacks and uh, kills some 120,000 people in Jerusalem. And then Edom uh, attacks and carries away captives. And Philistines are are attacking around the edges uh, of uh, Judah. And what does King Ahaz do? King Ahaz implores Assyria for help. And we read this about King Ahaz. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord. He became more faithless to the Lord as his circumstances became harder. Now, some of us know exactly what that's like. Things don't go according to our plan. And we continue to pursue and to pursue and to pursue our plan, not being mindful that God is using this as a means of sanctification. Well, Ahaz is nowhere on that chart, is he? He's uh, in his distress. He continues to grow in faithlessness. And, and so Ahaz is the kind of person that the Bible gives us an example of who grows in his devotion to wickedness. Not only does he rearrange those items around the temple, but over time he actually bars the doors of the temple and destroys the other elements that God had given to his people that they would be used to worship him. He, he actually grows in his faithlessness. In fact, when he dies, he's, apparently he dies of old age, but when he dies, uh, they wouldn't even bury him with the other kings. Now, Hezekiah becomes king at age 25. And by age 25, he actually becomes a man who did right in the eyes of the Lord. How? How did this happen to a little boy growing up in that home? His grandfather, King Jotham, loved God. And it could be that before the age of nine... Hezekiah learned a thing or two about the gospel of grace from his grandfather. It's really hard to tell, but I I think that that might be um, an admonition to grandparents to uh, help help, uh, teach your children about uh, Jesus. But if Hezekiah didn't, uh, didn't learn about Jesus through his grandfather by age nine, perhaps there was some evangelist in the uh, city of Jerusalem, a city that was known for its wickedness, a city that is uh, not following God. And perhaps there was an evangelist or two that told him uh, about God. Perhaps it was even Isaiah himself. Isaiah is ministering uh, in this time. I wonder how he actually came to love God. It may be this. Again, we don't know exactly, but it could be that uh, while he was in his teens, Israel had attacked Jerusalem, and and he, along with 200,000 other people, were taken uh, north. They were taken on a journey to Samaria. Uh, Israel had attacked the city. And as they're being uh, taken to Samaria, uh, they make a pit stop because a a prophet speaks to leaders in Samaria. And and the prophet says, uh, what you are doing is wrong. You intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem, male and female, as your slaves. Have you not sins of your own against the Lord your God? And God actually told them, 
to let the captives free. And the captives, 200,000 people, didn't actually make it to Samaria. They turned around, they were clothed, they were prepared to return home uh, by the ones who took them captive, and they returned to Jerusalem. Now, this made absolutely no impact upon Ahaz, but it may have made an impact upon his teenage son. That may have marked Hezekiah to take an interest in God because God is gracious. And they weren't taken captive. They were returned home. The one thing that's absolutely sure is that when Hezekiah became a king, he was absolutely enthralled by God. Age 25, and perhaps his uh, uh, very first year, we see some pictures of his devotion to God that are just soul-stirring. In his very first month, he opens up the temple that his father had locked tight. In fact, his uh, very first commands are not commands about building bulwarks or building walls or fashioning weaponry. Uh, the first commands of Hezekiah are to the Levites. And he says to them, hear me, consecrate yourselves, consecrate the house of the Lord, carry out the filth. And not only this, Hezekiah knows that families need to worship God. And he says that our fathers fell by the sword, our, wi our wives, our sons, our daughters were held captive, but no more for that. Our families, our fathers, our siblings, our children, we're going to be worshipers of God and he knows that worship needs to last, and so he calls the Levites his own sons who will actually carry forward a proper worship of God. He knows that worship needs to be done together. And so one of the things that stands out about Hezekiah is that he appoints musicians, or, or rather reappoints musicians, and he makes sure that they have instruments and that they have music. There's a funny reference in Proverbs chapter 25 at the very beginning that Hezekiah was known for copying the, the Proverbs of Solomon to be used for worship. This is a man who is enthralled by God. In fact, there's no one like Hezekiah. In 2 Kings 18, we read this about him. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. Wouldn't you like that to be something that describes you? Someone who held fast to the Lord. If people know anything at all about me, would they know that? Not my vocation, not my opinions or tastes or my house or my career. Would they know this? That I was a man who held fast to the Lord. Now, he's not perfect in his life. None of us are. But he did lead a revival of worship. But not even regarding worship is Hezekiah perfect. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning. Doesn't that sound terrible to talk about the imperfections of a godly man? But that is exactly what I want us to focus on. But first, you need to understand a thing or two about the audience of Second Chronicles chapter 30. You know, these books of the Bible, First uh, and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, uh, boy, they just seem like uh, a dusty history, and it's, it's very, very hard to, uh, to warmly receive these books of the Bible, perhaps. But know a, a thing or two about these books. Uh, Kings, as an example, it, it covers the history of uh, Israel, and it goes right up through the exile in Babylon. That's, in fact, where Second Kings ends. 
the people are in Babylon. And then 2 Chronicles goes just a little bit further and, and has the people uh, leaving Babylon and beginning that process of resettling. And then we go into Ezra and Nehemiah, which is about exactly that, about the resettling of the people after Jerusalem has been destroyed. Both books were written for that setting in which the people are trying to re, uh, re-enliven something that had died. They're going back to a city in tatters. That's who First and Second Kings is written for. And that's who First and Second Chronicles is written for. It's written for that post-exile life. It's written some, uh, for people that are, that are um, living some 175 years after Hezekiah had died. And the life that they're living is, a, is almost like a science fiction novel. It's a dystopian kind of existence. Jerusalem, it's a pile of rubble. There are no walls. There's no infrastructure. There's no temple. There are no civil leaders. There's no uh, priests. There's no academics. All of the, the notable people had already been uh, extracted by Babylon. And uh, as you can imagine, there's no king. Instead, there is a governor who, uh, who exercises authority at the behest of someone else. And this governor, he doesn't have any skilled leaders. They've all been taken. This governor doesn't have an economy, no money. Uh, the land has very little food. And then Cyrus, he's allowed some 45,000 people to return to that? Well, yes, to return to that. And, and as the people go into this, uh, this handicapped Jerusalem... Some of them will stop at the temple and make a free will offering, but it's only to simply go to their home village, to their towns. Worshiping as a body in this post-exile community, well, it's non-existent. Some of the exiles enter and offer a tribute, but not all of them. If families of the Levites, that, that family of great families where all of the religious leaders came from, all of them, they went to Jerusalem and they just went to their various towns rather than staying in Jerusalem to rebuild the worship community. And one problem is that some of the records that the governor was keeping were wrong. So a Levite who was a Levite in Babylon, when he returns, there are no records to confirm that he is actually a Levite. And so he just goes home. There's one priest, Jeshua, at best. None of the Levites are actually uh, organized. And and over time, they uh, do some rebuilding. In the first year, they rebuild the altar. But over the next 19 years, they uh, rebuild the the temple, and it becomes uh, reconstructed. And so now there's a temple, but don't celebrate too quickly because the older adults in the community weep when they see it. There's a temple but it's not a great temple. And Ezra, he is, he is writing and, uh, to these people, and he is pulling from Second Chronicles, or actually he's writing Second Chronicles, he's pulling from the life of Hezekiah. And these are the things in Hezekiah's life that Ezra, I think Ezra is the author of Second Chronicles, that Ezra highlights for the people of this wasteland. Remember, when we worship, we serve the will of a gracious God who loves us in Christ Jesus. And these people in this exile need to be taught how to worship. And Ezra goes to Hezekiah, and he tells them the story of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, we, we want to return there. We want to talk about really what is the, the purpose of Second uh, Chronicles 30. But zealous Hezekiah a man who loves God. He's, he's unlike uh, any other king. He held fast to the Lord. But even Hezekiah doesn't quite have the tools for worship. 
Hezekiah wants to celebrate the Passover. Uh, You read at the beginning of our passage, Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. But what Hezekiah is doing here is really aiming big. He, He doesn't want just Judah to worship. He wants the northern kingdom to worship as well. That the kingdom that actually uh, took him captive, uh, the kingdom that warred against his father. And, and Hezekiah, uh, he's including the north. That's, that's uh, Ephraim, Manasseh. And as he uh, has this enormous project of worshiping God as one body, even though that body has shown uh, so many fissures, so many divisions that they've warred against one another over uh, the centuries. But Hezekiah doesn't care. He wants all of them to come together, to assemble in one place in Jerusalem and worship there. And Ezra, as he's telling this story, it has to be in the back of Ezra's mind as well. We have this temple, and the temple doesn't look pretty, but let's all gather together and worship there. There we will assemble. And Ezra, to encourage the people in that dystopian uh, post-exile landscape of Jerusalem, to encourage him, he goes to Hezekiah and he says, you know, Hezekiah didn't have it all right. Yes, he led a revival, but he didn't have it all right. There were a few irregularities, and I want to, I want to mention uh, just four of them. The first one is this. Look at verse 2 of our passage. Right at the beginning, it may not stand out to you, the, the king and his princes and the assembly in Jerusalem, they take counsel to keep the Passover in the second month. You see, that's a problem because the Passover is celebrated in the first month, not the second month. Things weren't quite coming together, even at the very beginning. Now, it would, it would appear that Hezekiah is taking comfort in a, in a passage from the Torah, Numbers chapter 9. Uh, Numbers chapter 9 says that if a person is coming to, uh, to celebrate and, and uh, uh, touches a dead body uh, inadvertently uh, or is on a long journey and can't make it in time, then that's okay, God says. The Passover can take place uh, rather than the first month and the second month. It's almost like there's this 30-day window of grace that God allows. If it can't happen the first month, then the second month. And that's where Hezekiah is. At the very beginning, he's, he's tapping into that peculiarity of their worship service. But what this does, it, it allows the people to gather together in the second month so that they might have time for a long journey. And here Hezekiah is inviting people who live a long ways away. And as they come, they, they need some time. And so Hezekiah is going to aim not for the first month, which would be regular, but for the second month. It's irregular, but it's not uh, horribly irregular. And then notice what happens in verse 17. So you have to look, you look all the way down. You begin to see why I've chosen the passage the way I, passages the way I have. In verse 17, there were some priests who actually hadn't consecrated themselves. And it may be that they didn't know how. Uh, there would be a body of Levites uh, who would be a subset of all the Levites, and they would, part- they would consecrate themselves to serve as priests. They are both Levites and consecrated to serve as priests. But some of them hadn't been consecrated. And the Levites actually had to step in in verse 17, and they had to help. You see that the slaughtering of the Passover lamb takes place in verse 17. That's a job that's reserved to the priests, but the Levites are actually called in to help out. And then if you look down at verse 22, what does Hezekiah do? He, he, he praises those Levites. Hezekiah speaks encouragingly to all of the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord because they had to do priestly work. There were some priests 
hadn't consecrated themselves. And there's a couple of other things as well. Look at verse 18. A majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, actually had not cleansed themselves, and yet they ate the Passover meal otherwise than as prescribed. They didn't cleanse themselves. Oh, dear. You've already delayed the Passover for a month. You've already checked out all of the irregularities that God has allowed, and now what do you do? They actually they didn't consecrate themselves, and yet they already ate. Wow. And that's why verse 19 is there. Now think about this. Ezra, you know, looking at that desolate Jerusalem, a body of people who haven't gathered together in such a long time. And Ezra pulls this out of the archives of information about Hezekiah, and we have verse 19 that is absolutely gorgeous. Hezekiah says, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. And in verse 20, it says that that the Lord healed the people. Is it possible that there were some that were ill as a result? We, We just don't know. But it's yet another irregularity. It's a third irregularity of this worship service. It's beautiful. It's a revival. It's exciting. But there's just problems all over the place. The last one is in verse uh, 21. Now, you might think that I'm a little negative to see this as being negative, but there's something here that's interesting. The Levites, the priests, praise the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. Yes, that's wonderful. And then skip down to verse 23, and it seems to continue happening. Then the whole assembly agreed together to keep the feast for another seven days. Yet another irregularity. Hezekiah is almost making stuff up as he goes. What is he doing? Now, there's a, there's a spectrum of these irregularities, aren't there? But I want us to understand that uh, this Passover that's led by this godly man, it takes place in the second month. The Levites uh, had to expand their role because there weren't enough priests. Uh, Some never consecrated themselves properly and they needed intercessory prayer. And then they extended the feast an additional seven days. When we worship, we serve the will of a gracious God who loves us in Christ Jesus. And as I think about the season of our life together as a church, I think about the irregularities. We normally worship over there in the sanctuary, and we have a liturgy, and we have roles, and it's beautiful, and we believe that there's theological rationale for everything that we do. But we actually worship a God who's full of grace. You think it's possible that we have grown to be a little bit proud of the way that we worship? And I shouldn't speak for you, just speak for myself. I'm contemplating that reality for my own life. Have we become a little proud in our worship? Have we become a lot proud in our worship? And have we forgotten that God is gracious and that our worship never is our measurement before God? Nor should it be. Hezekiah was a man who held held fast to the Lord. When I think about Jesus Christ who is our Lord, are we holding fast to Jesus in our worship? the one who died that we might have the privilege of calling upon God as his adopted son, as his adopted daughter. We think that we are the kind of people who, above all other things, we hold fast to Jesus. You see, that's very important. I directed you to look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul is, uh, is addressing Timothy in his last letter. And what Paul says is he, is he says that this gospel is often not very pretty. I understand I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. 
that Timothy is preaching a gospel message, but that gospel message that Paul preached actually landed him in prison. And he writes from prison. And he says, don't be ashamed of the gospel that got me in prison. And not only that, uh, he says, don't be ashamed of the gospel that has brought suffering to me and should bring suffering to you. Because the gospel tells us that we're always just a little bit wobbly. And we need God's help day in and day out. And sometimes we think of worship as kind of the, the highlight of our week and the fact that that's where I am most holy. And don't fool yourself. All of us are unholy as we gather to worship God. The service is, is, is beautiful and it's, and it's filled with good doctrine. And it's about God's word. But don't think that as we gather to worship, we worship based upon our own holiness. We worship because we're the kind of people who are covered in Christ Jesus and it's him that we hold fast to. God says this to Isaiah, who ministered to Hezekiah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And Samuel says to another king hundreds of years earlier, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen better than the fat of rams. And our own Lord and Savior quotes Hosea, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But Jesus also says this, and I think this is very pressing to us right now, and I'll close with this. Jesus says in Mark chapter 12 that we are to be the kind of people who love God with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. To love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. We're trying to worship this morning together while not really being together. And as we worship, we're trying to follow uh, the will of our Heavenly Father and to submit to those who are in positions of authority. And as we gather to worship, we're trying to uh, love uh, the vulnerable and powerless among us uh, as a duty of mercy to them. And as we gather together, we're trying to taste that togetherness in a different way in a way that we can do even though we're far apart because we're suffering together and we're mourning with those who mourn. But there's a great freedom in being able to do that because we actually worship a gracious God who loves us not in what we do and what we offer, not even in our intentions. We worship a God who loves us with grace because he loves us in Christ Jesus. And he is the only one who has worshipped God perfectly. And in that liberty, there was a great revival in Jerusalem during the kingship of Hezekiah. And I want all of us to notice that. If you are not a Christian, the bumpy big wheel is more than a problem. That's more than a problem. You can never correct it permanently. You just buy a new one, buy a new one, buy a new one. But for a Christian, the wobbly big wheel is sound to our ears. Because when we worship, we serve the will of a gracious God who actually loves us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do ask that you would continue to sanctify us by all the means at your disposal, which means sanctifying us as you see fit.
We thank you for that. Continue, Heavenly Father, to care for your children whom you love through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.